Well, this morning we come to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And if you were to do a Google search for sermons on Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, you will find a countless number of sermons that will be far better than this one. (laughs) I know because I listened to several of them this past week. This is such a great passage. And it is a popular passage on which to preach, especially over the last 20 years or so, because it is about contextualization and it is the first experience overtly that we have of Paul not just ministering within the synagogue to the believing community, or at least the, uh, the church-going, if you will, community, the synagogue-going community, but he goes out into the marketplace and he preaches to the pagans. He reasons with the unbelievers. And for a church in the United States that has come to grips with the fact that it's not just about getting people to come to church, but about the church going out into the world that we might reason with and dialogue with unbelievers. This has been a key passage for the church to look at over the last generation for uh, insight and Paul's model of how to do this. In that, uh, we also learn about the context in which we minister and realize that the United States is different than Portugal, which is different than Saudi Arabia, different than Moscow, different than Honduras, different than London. Butler, Pennsylvania is different than Pittsburgh even. And Butler, Pennsylvania in 2017 is different than Butler, Pennsylvania in 1975. And so we seek to understand the context in which we live and in which we minister. That we might see that, but more importantly, that we might see what God's word says to speak into that before we read the word. Let's go before the author in prayer. Lord, we are excited to come to your word. We know that you speak by your word. You reveal yourself and you speak truth where there are lies. You speak truth where there's ignorance, but mostly because you reveal yourself, your will and your ways that encourages and enables us to live in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. Make that the case today. Send your spirit now and bear witness to the reading and to the preaching of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Now, Paul's first missionary journey took him through what is modern-day Turkey, places like Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and to some of the small towns there. But Paul's second missionary journey, God has clearly directed Paul to go into Europe, into Eastern Europe. And what Paul has done is to go to the big cities of Eastern Europe. He's been to Philippi, and Thessalonica, and then Berea. And now he goes to the chief of them all, 300 miles away he has traveled in order to go to the most influential cities in the ancient world, Athens. Silas has stayed behind in Thessalonica, or I'm sorry, in Berea in order to pastor. Timothy has stayed behind in Thessalonica to pastor the people there. And so Paul is running solo here in Athens. And here is the account beginning at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace 
day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Our passage begins in verse 16 with something really important, and it's said in a really important way, something that we saw two weeks ago, or two chapters ago anyway. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And that phrase, greatly distressed, is the word that we saw back in Acts 15, verse 39, where it was translated sharp disagreement. Remember that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement, and so they parted company. And at that time, we noted that the same word is used in a very positive way, Hebrews 10, 24, where it's stir up. Let us stir up one another in love and good deeds. The word is paroxysm or paroxysm as Dr. Hoffer corrected me, because uh, I mentioned that it was uh, used in medical terminology. And so I was talking to Dr. Hoffer about this. And he said, yes, a, a paroxysm usually refers to a heart condition, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, an episode where the atria or upper chambers of the heart lose their normal rhythm so that there's an irregular, often rapid heart rate. And what that means is that it's not ongoing. It is an episode 
a moment in which it happens. It can recur, but has a beginning point and an end point. And so a, a paroxysm can be concerning, but in medicine, there may be some things that can be done to manage it. Now, spiritually, it can also be concerning, but in the hands of the great physician, there is a redemptive purpose because the word is ordinarily used and translated to say provoke. The ESV translation was that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, Whenever we read about the Lord being provoked to wrath, the Lord being provoked to anger, it's this word. The Lord gets provoked to anger because of his people's idolatry. Now think about this for a minute, because when God is provoked to anger, he's not sinning, right? We often think of anger as being sinful in and of itself. Now, sometimes it is. Sometimes we are angry for self-centered purposes. We didn't get what we want, we're immediately angry. But sometimes, and perhaps more than we realize, we are angry because there's something that's wrong. It's a righteous anger. We ought to be angry. Someone or a grouping of people or something has happened that is wrong, and we are angry about it, rightly. The response is then what we consider. So often I know that I have perhaps been rightly angry about something, but my response was not righteous, even though the anger was. The scripture doesn't say, don't be angry. The scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. Even more literally, be angry and do not sin. And so the Lord being provoked to wrath is not sinful. And the Lord's response of anger is not sinful, but is in fact redemptive. When God is provoked to anger, it is not sinful, but redemptive. When God is provoked, he pursues us. And we see that that is exactly what Paul does. Paul is provoked, and so he pursues the people of Athens. He's angry about the idols, but his anger doesn't mean he goes on social media and rants about it, right? It doesn't mean that he just goes, oh, these stupid people and all their stupid idols. He goes and pursues the people for redemptive purposes, Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. This is what we have seen him do in Thessalonica in the first journey as well, is that Paul reasons with, he dialogues with those in the synagogue as well as the marketplace. He doesn't Bible bash, he doesn't beat on people, he dialogues, reasons with, he argues with in the right sense of that word arguing to have an argument now i was thinking about why this doesn't seem to happen as much anymore why why don't we engage so much in face-to-face dialogues like this it seems to me that there are two reasons first our current culture has us do this poorly through non-face-to-face technological interactions Conversations happen through texting and social media, podcasts and the like, where we're not really having a dialogue. We're trying to make mic drops statements, right? You know what I mean by that, right? We post an internet meme or link to an aggressively stated article that agrees with what we think and boom, there it is. Drop the mic, walk away, deal with that, people. Which is not inviting conversation and dialogue. It's the sort of discourse 
that unfortunately we see from our politicians and celebrities, pseudo-academics, and we model that sort of discourse, not dialogue and reasoning, but unreasonable statements, being unreasonable in our actions and rude. One of the biggest countercultural, transformational things that Christians could perhaps do in our world today is simply sit down and have dialogue with people. To sit down and have a conversation with another person where you're wanting to listen to one another and understand and to reason things out together. Which then is, I think, the second reason why this doesn't happen is fear. Christians in particular often have a fear that someone will ask a question to our face that we can't answer. Great. (laughs) That's great. That's awesome. That's when it's supposed to happen. It's a great thing to have someone ask a question that you don't readily have an answer in that moment. You can affirm the question and then say, you want to take some time to think about that, to consider that question. Now, you may be able to wrestle through the question on your own as you search God's word just a bit and come up with an answer. Or if it's a really good question, you might have to read a lot of God's word. Perhaps even talk with other friends about their knowledge of God's word on this. A pastor, theologians, those that have written volumes on that very question. You may have to take days or weeks or months or even years to answer a question, especially if it's a really good question. But you don't have to fear it. Embrace it. Pretending that there are no good questions is arrogant and stifles our faith. Instead, we embrace the question and seek out the answer, and then our own faith grows, as well as being able to share it with that many more people. Every question that I've ever had or any question I've ever heard has always enriched my life and faith as I've sought truth from God's word. Questions that have come up in my own experience, but even more, the questions that get asked outside of me, things I never considered that someone else asks, I go, that's a good question. I need to wrestle with that. I need to figure out the answer to that. And then to go back to God's word and to let my faith be fed by such a thing. I need to move on. So that's Paul's paroxysm in Athens, which redemptively connects to Paul's presence in Athens. Paul is present in the marketplace to reason with, to dialogue with the people in the marketplace. Now remember that Athens was the cultural capital of the world. Historically, it was the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It was the place of the Greek plays. In the midst of Athens was the marketplace, the agora, with temples and state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, galleries. And so who was there? Everyone. Because there wasn't really any technology, everyone had to gather together in the marketplace. Town officials and judges deliberating, artists creating the stock market, so to speak, with the businessmen making all their deals. And you had the media, not newspapers, And so you had to go out into the marketplace to hear the heralds announce the news of the day. And there weren't journals that you could read online. You had philosophers debating the latest ideas. It was the public space for the exchange of everything. Not just where you went to shop for your food and all your wares. It was the place that you shopped 
for ideas, philosophies, business, art, everything. It was the place where the Greco-Roman culture was shaped in real time. And so Paul is present in the marketplace to dialogue day by day with those who happen to be there, which is a huge diversity of people from all walks of life. Verse 18 specifically says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And those were the two main philosophical systems of the day. In many ways, they still are. The Epicureans were the free will, carpe diem, seize the day group. Make the most of today because there may be no tomorrow. And this life is all there is. There is no afterlife. So enjoy this life to the full. The path of happiness is freedom from fear and bodily pain. In other words, freedom from emotional and physical pain by pursuing the right balance of moderate pleasure. That's Epicureanism. The Stoics, on the other hand, were, well, Stoic. (laughs) They believed in fatalism, determinism. Life was full of troubles that were unavoidable. And so developing self-control and ethics was the key to overcoming destructive emotions and pleasure pursuits. The path to happiness is to accept our lot in life and to use our minds to work together and treat one another fairly. Now, next to verse 21 in my Bible, I have drawn a smiley face, an emoji, if you will. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And it sounds ridiculous, and then you realize that's the exact same thing we do today. We don't have one marketplace area for us to do this face-to-face. We now have a global marketplace that exists in various technology and media forms, and the diversity is lived out in various subgroups. My undergraduate degree was in sociology, with a minor in psychology. When I realized the Lord was calling me into ministry, I wanted to understand people and understand society and culture. And so it is my training, it is my hobby to read the culture. I thoroughly enjoy it. For others... Trying to keep up with cultural trends is exhausting and seems ever-changing. It isn't, really, but it feels that way because of the way the marketplace has spread out. You can't get all of it in one place like Athens. But at the same time, you don't have to read everything, watch everything, listen to everything, do everything in order to keep up with all the trends. Several years ago, I attended a, a pastor's conference, and the speaker was uh, phenomenal. His understanding and grasp of God's word was really quite something. But so was his grasp of the current culture and his understanding of the intersection of God's word and culture and how to speak God's truth into the culture. And it also became readily apparent that it seemed like he had read everything that had ever been written that mattered (laughs) and that his vast amount of reading had helped him to understand all of these things. And I went up to him afterwards, I said, how do you have the time to read as much as you do? And he said, there's three reasons. First, I have a really understanding wife. (laughs) The second, he said, I do not now, nor have I ever owned a television. He said, and I do not now, nor have I ever had internet access. I said, well, that would certainly free up a lot of time. And I also came to realize that you don't have to watch every TV show, 
or every movie or listen to every song to understand what's happening in the culture. They're all about tolerance and diversity. They're all about let me believe, think, and do whatever I want. But by the way, the world is miserable. That's what it's been about for more than 20 years. It's been a lot longer than that, in fact. And you don't have to follow everyone on every form of social media or read the free news, blogs, and journals online to understand what's happening in culture. Everyone really is an Epicurean or a Stoic. just has different terminology from time to time. And so being present in the culture doesn't mean embracing it. We don't need to avoid and separate, but to be present, to enter in, to understand, to consider the entry gates, the touch points, the common ground for talking. But mostly we need to be present, physically present, to impact the people and systems of our world. All right, now I really need to get going. Let me go uh, on to verse 19, where it tells us that the philosophers are the ones who took Paul to the Areopagus. And then verse 22 begins Paul's speech at Mars Hill. And that is what Areopagus means. It literally means the hill of Ares, who is the Greek god, and the Roman equivalent is Mars. And with the Roman influence over the years, it is more widely known as Mars Hill. It was the place where the judges, officials, and philosophers met to deliberate and make official decisions. It was the place where the council met, where the court was in session. Paul is given an opportunity to address the court and have his beliefs put on trial by the brightest thinkers of that age. Now, brilliantly, Paul has not only exegeted God's word, but he has exegeted his listeners. He has understood who his listeners are, and so he begins by articulating an observation and a point of contact. Verse 22, the end of that verse, "'Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious.'" For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. And what does Paul observe about his listeners? They are religious. They wouldn't necessarily call themselves that because they aren't in the synagogue religious, but they are still religious. That, in fact, that word literally means you fear the gods. It even gets translated in the King James as, you are superstitious. All of those really are synonymous. Paul then tells his hearers that he walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship. And that's how he could see that they are religious. And those words translated see in verse 22 and looked carefully in verse 23 are essentially the same word. And they're not the ordinary word for looking but a word that gives us our word theory or theorize. You can't construct a theory unless you spend some time really considering something. You examine and observe, and after some time of considering those things, then you form a theory. So it's not just glancing about. Paul didn't just sort of walk around and go, hey, that's interesting, huh, and make an immediate decision and a reactionary decision. He took the time to observe, to behold, to examine, to perceive we also need to look carefully and examine and consider and theorize the objects of worship in our culture. And so we don't need to fear the culture's questions or idols, but to consider them. Not to react to what it is that we see or hear, but to theorize, to 
consider, to understand. Paul calls them objects of worship and also calls them idols. Likewise, we can call them idols. In fact, that might be a better word in some cases than simply calling things sin. Because when you talk about the idol, you start to drive to the heart of what something is. The idols are those things that replace God. And even as we examine the idols of the world, it's often helpful in examining the idols in our own hearts. We should carefully consider the idols in the world and in our hearts, those things that replace God, those things that serve in place of God. Idols are those things that we are most attached to, that we fear losing, and if we do lose, have the most heightened response to. And yet when we think about idols at the other level, it seems really silly. Earlier in our service, we read Isaiah 44, the making of idols out of metal, rock, and wood, and that rather humorous mocking of half the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, roasts his meat, eats his fill, warms himself and says, I am warm, I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god. His idol, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. He uses half the wood to make his dinner and the other half to make a God. And I think, how ridiculous is that? And then realize we do it all the time. We take something good and that is in its purpose sometimes, but then we use part of it in such a way that we use it to find our identity and our purpose, our meaning in life. Work is a good thing, but we turn it into an idol and it becomes our place of identity and our purpose. A spouse is a good thing, but not having a spouse means you begin to question your identity and purpose and value. Losing family makes you begin to wonder whether or not there's any purpose left in life. Money is a good thing, but it becomes an idol and the sole purpose for life's pursuits Food, people, electronic devices, our sports teams, education, status, good things that become idols. And we have an emotional roller coaster as we ride the highs and lows of what that idol does for us or doesn't. Paul then particularly keys in on a particular idol, the one with the inscription to an unknown God. And in Greek, it is to an agnostis theos. And you hear in that word, agnostic, which means unknown. Someone who is an agnostic is simply saying, I don't know if there is a God. And I don't know who that God is. And I don't know that anyone can know who that God is. And so Paul goes on to say, what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. And that word unknown there, sometimes translated ignorance. What you worship in ignorance, I will now proclaim to you. In fact, the words ignorance and agnostic are essentially the same word. You can see even in English that they have some similar letters there because it's really the same root word, not knowing, unknown. We are ignorant of lots of things. There are lots of things that are unknown. And so Paul professes the God who is known, the God who is revealed by his word. He begins in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Now we, as Christians, go, well, yeah. (laughs) 
But to understand that in that context, and still in fact today, it is radically different. The Greek notion of God is that there were gods for every trade, gods for every town, gods for every household. Everybody had made their own gods. And so this idea that there was one God overall, that is radical. But is it not still the case in our world today that people want to have individual gods? I want to think, believe, and do whatever I want to think, believe, and do. We become our own God or we have our own idols and those become our personal idols and we want them to be valued by the whole society, sometimes paid for by the whole society. And so for us to come in and say there is one God over all is radical and offensive. But it's good for us to remember the idols that we ourselves serve and to know why it is that the cross of Christ is offensive because it crucifies our idols. It crucifies those things that we hold most dear above and apart from Christ. And God, who is a jealous God, will not tolerate such things, but redemptively pursues us that we might understand that he is the God overall, creator and sustainer, providential in all things. And so verse 25, he goes on to say that this God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And the word that's there for served is where we get our word therapeutic, that we are, we create, we uh, therapeutically um, create these things uh, to heal, even to cure, uh, as though God somehow needs our therapeutic help, as though God is somehow standing up in heaven going, what am I supposed to do with the world today? As though God is supposed to look at whatever is happening in our life and go, I don't know what to do. I hope somebody can figure it out. We have a God who is the God overall. God doesn't need our help. He calls us to serve him for his glory and for our enjoyment of him. For it is God who gives life and breath and everything else. It is God who has made every nation under on the earth. We are all related back to Adam. And it is good for us to remember this. Even unbelievers are image bearers. We are all related. Racism is anti-Christian. Ethnocentrism is anti-Christian. The idea that I or my group is better than you and your group is wrong. We all are created by Christ and being recreated by Christ. And redemptively, we pursue those who do not know God overall risen through Christ and powerful still in this world to change lives and systems and cultures. God then is not far from any of us. Because of sin, we are far from God. But Christ bridges that gap so that God is not far from anyone. Even those who would seem so far away are as close as anyone because God is everywhere. I really need to wrap up because we are running out of time. But at the end of this passage is really interesting, the people's response in Athens. We see just how uh, shocking what Paul has said uh, is that they respond. And some of the ways they respond is there are some who simply sneer. 
those who can't possibly get down with his resurrection of the dead idea. That's way too radical. The idea of one God who is the God over all of the other gods can't handle that. You're just speaking foolishness, and that will be the end of that. But there are others who will say, let's have some more dialogue. We want to hear you again on this subject. I'm not convinced yet, but I'd love to hear you some more. But then there are a few who believe in that moment. Their minds also were blown, but God called to them, and they responded. And it's interesting that a couple are named, Dionysius and Damaris, and then a number of others. You kind of wonder if those in Athens, when the Bible finally got printed and the final edition came out, and they said, hey, are we in there? A number of others. That's, that's me, I guess. One of the number of others, but that's, that's us, right? We're a number of others. We're, we're part of the group. We don't get specifically named. These two were named, certainly Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. People are going to remember that one. Damaris, perhaps well-known in that community. And so people could go back and ask and say, sure enough, there they are. Yes, they were. And a number of others. And over time, eventually, a church was formed. In fact, it's rather remarkable that Paul was able to simply leave the council. Nobody thrown stones. He's not thrown in prison, as we've seen in other places. He's simply able to leave the council. Thank you for your hearing. And those that want to hear more on the subject, I'll be present again in the marketplace tomorrow. Let's meet at Starbucks. We'll hang out at Panera. We'll go hang out at Penny's, right? We'll go hang out, and we're going to go talk some more. We'll reason some more and dialogue some more. Let's enjoy a conversation together. And along the way, people may be convinced by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the God who really is the God overall, who has come to us in the person of Christ, who died for our sins and is raised to new life, that we might have life in Christ and in none other. That'll take time to get there for many. And so we don't demand that people hear right now or forget it, I've given up on you. We reason and dialogue and take time to be present in people's lives and to get there together. Let's do that. And let's try to get there together because we know the truth who has set us free. Amen.